I got involved on behalf of the mother to sort of keep the family together and make sure the money was shaken loose. And it was a really uh, a fascinating and interesting, high-profile, multifaceted uh, matter. It involved family rights and contract rights and money and stardom, and it was, it was great. You probably remember Tiffany from the mid-'80s. This podcast episode is brought to you by Biotropic Labs. We are innovators and leaders in competitive edge sports supplements. Enjoy this special podcast episode and help us spread the word. Have fun. Let's jump in here. First of all, I appreciate you calling, taking the time. You're a busy man um, doing important things as far as I'm concerned, and I think uh, some of my colleagues would agree here. Um, it's been fun doing a little bit of research on, on Epitaph Records here. Um, because it reminds me a little bit of a story uh, when I did live in Westwood, about right around where you're at now. But I lived in a building with a guy named Bob McAdoo, and I was wondering if you had any idea who he was. No, never heard of him. I'm the Bob basketball Mc... player, Bob McAdoo. Yeah, no, you just nailed it. That's who it is. And, uh, oh, so of course. I was... Yeah, he's, yeah. A, he's a great – he's the leading scorer on the Buffalo Braves history, and then he came to the Lakers and had a great career with the Lakers, helping them win championships and changing his role – from a superstar scorer to a guy who gave you great minutes off the bench. Yeah, he was awesome. All right. Number one. So I'm, I'm glad you know him because he lived in a building I lived in when I, when I was uh, living, you know, out that way back then. And uh, one day uh, I got in the elevator to go up to my apartment and there was this seven foot giant in the elevator with me. And I was younger and I didn't know any better. And I just looked way up at this guy and I said, man, you, you ought to be a basketball player with that height. And he looked down at me and just gave me a friendly smile. He didn't say a word and he, he let it go. And that was the end of that. And, uh, I don't know, a week or two later, you know, just coming into the apartment, uh, complex, I just, for some reason, I can't even explain. I happened to be looking at the marquee and I saw Bob McAdoo on the marquee, on the, uh, the directory, on the directory. Yeah. And I just, you know, slapped my forehead, and I felt like a fool, and I thought, wow, you yeah. must just think I'm some kind of clown. So, uh, well, the reason, I, the reason I'm telling you that story is uh, I called up a few of my friends in, in the music industry, and I said, you know, I'm going to be talking with this really neat guy I met, and I, I uh, sort of told him the story about how we, how we met. I said, what do you know about Epitaph Records? And uh, right out of the gate, my buddy says, well, you know, Craig, you know, you're, you're talking to one of the great startup stories of all time, as far as I'm concerned. This comes from a pretty heavyweight dude. And I thought, this is a little bit like the McAdoo story. Here I am talking uh, to Doug on the phone, having some pleasant, fun conversations. And it turns out you're connected to a real, you know, heavyweight company. That's that's who you're with. And I didn't know that. So Yeah, well, well with them as a slight overstatement. I'm family there. I, I uh, What happened was the founder is one guy, and he's a musician, and he had a band called Bad Religion, and he started – he was industrious. It was. It's an old-fashioned American startup company uh, a story, but it wasn't me. He was. It's a guy named Brett Gerwitz, and he had his band. And he's like, "Well, I can put out the records. You know, I can manufacture the Bad Religion records." And then he went around to his little community of punk rockers in the early '80s, No Effects and Pennywise and L7 and Thelonious Monster. And he did like little one-page contracts, and then he had a distribution deal, and he came to me one day a couple years in when I was brand new in the business, and one of my high school buddies who I was actually in a band with from 10 years ago was in Bad Religion with him, and I had been working with 
vast guy. It's sort of a, it's sort of a slightly uh, uh, missing a couple connections along the way. But somebody referred me, referred Brett to come into my office. And he came into my office and said, I've had this company for a couple years. We've never had a lawyer. I have one-page contracts, and I have a bad distribution deal that has taught me a lesson that I want to do things differently. Will you help me out and be my lawyer? And then I started with him then. I was about 87. And we started working together then, and we became so close. Our, our lives paralleled each other in a number of ways that at one point uh, I was actually inside the company for a couple of years but have always just been the lawyer and, and uh, not the main guy by any means. <laughs> yeah, maybe, but it's been a great maybe. client and a significant yeah. part of my professional uh, uh, life. Great client, significant part of your life, but also uh, you, you downplay, you're being very humble here, you're downplaying your involvement. It's true that it's true it kicked off before you got involved, but, uh, I mean, you, you, you hooked on to a pretty cool machine here, a pretty cool heavyweight machine here. It's got to be really exciting for you to be part of that machine. It, it has been. It's been a great learning experience. It's been a great part of my uh, career. Uh, I've been helpful. I like to think I've been helpful in a number of ways uh, with that business. And yeah, it has been part of the fabric of everything I've done every day for just about 30 years. Yeah, it's true. Well, you you, you know, you're in a business. I always say to my friends in the business, uh, I always say to them, look, you guys are having the most fun. Even when it's a tough time, you're having a good time. And uh, you basically stole my life because I love music so much that when I hear people are, you know, playing or, or, or doing it uh, or on, on the side of it that you are, I, I know you're having a great time. I know it's uh, a lot of fun. I know it's a hell of a hard lot of work, too, but I don't think there's anything greater in the world than being in the music business one way or the other. And I was telling you the other day when we were chatting about this get-together that I was talking to a, a producer, a movie producer the other day, and I couldn't help myself and flipped out and told him he was in the second best business there was and that, that uh -huh. your side yeah, of it was, that. <laughs> that yours was the best, which I, I believe. So, yeah, well, your company, Epitaph, has turned out quite a few uh, uh, talented folks. You want to name a few? Can you name a couple? Well, that, that again, that my company is a small law firm. Uh, but that company, Epitaph, that I, that I again, they're they're one of my clients at this point, right? And uh, right. I have a, uh, I have others. But that company has been uh, obviously responsible for Bad Religion because that was the founders' bank and a little separate company for Tom Waits called Anti, like a sister company. And and Tom's been on the label for about 20 years, and they've had Rancid, The Offspring. They have new bands that are coming up and doing great too. Joyce Manor, Plague Bender, female artists like Touche Amour, who's great. So they've had a bunch for many, many years. They've made some Merle Haggard records. Nico Case has been a, a stalwart artist on that label. Well, so, just yeah. uh, big, big names, big names. Now you mentioned Tom Waits. Yes. One of, one of my Tom. favorites, and probably you know he's done so so much work, and it's probably a bit a bit commercial to say one of my favorite songs by him. And so this is just right off the top of my head is New Coat of Paint. I don't know if you know that one off the top of your head, but it's sort of, uh, you know, uh, a slow, bluesy, rocky, jazzy song about putting a new coat of paint on this town. Uh, very catchy tune, very, very fun song. I've always liked Waits. He's always been a little bit uh, off the beaten path here. Isn't he the guy? Didn't he make a habit of going out at like 2 or 3 in the morning and eating in diners to get ideas about, Correct. Uh, about that's, songs? That's yeah. him. That's him. So he was a perfect <laughs> fit with a CDLA label like Epitaph. Uh, and he realized that after being with 
with Collector Records and Island Records for many years where he didn't feel he received his royalties properly and uh he was part of a big machine and then and then with the success that Epitaph showed and the ability to sell millions of records, his representatives turned him on to the idea of being with us. I was at the company at the time and so we signed him and he's never looked back. I'm sure he's had some of the the biggest selling records he's ever had and he certainly made the most money as a result of the favor the artist's favorable uh, royalty structure that Epitaph always has. Oh, good so for him. He's, uh, he's sure he deserves yeah. it. I'm sure he deserves it. Um, is there anything, one thing in particular regarding Epitaph that stands them out from the crowd? Because they do stand out from the crowd. Is there one thing you'd say that, that makes them different? Well, for there's an ideological purity <laughs> uh, and a musical purity. For, for one thing, for the first, I don't know, 10 years of their existence, they pretty much sold one kind of band and one kind of record only, which was punk rock. You know, Brett had created a California punk rock sound, which involved harmonies and very uh, you know, lyrics you could really understand, uh, with a lot of harmony and a lot of guitar, sort of like Beach Boys meets meets the Ramones. And and every record was that kind of record. Uh, so that's one thing that made it stand out as it gained its huge success. And then after that, it, it's, uh, it could only be best described as so, as, uh, more artist friendly. It's owned by an artist. He never sold. He's in control of the destiny of the label every day for 30 years. And other labels sell so that their owners could get fabulously wealthy. Brett's never done that. And that's totally unique for a company of his size. And it makes him responsible to the artists more so than any other company you could think of. I got it. I got it. And and could that story happen today the way it did when he started? Is that the kind of thing that could be repeated in this day and age, 2016 versus when he kicked it off? That's an excellent question. Uh, You know, his explosive growth was records that sold 8 million and 10 million and 1 million. And that is unlikely to ever occur again because people just aren't buying that type of, of music, that, that that volume of music of one artist where you can get a platinum rock record or a quintuple platinum rock record. But what you can have and do have, I think, I uh, can't name any examples off. Well, no, they have a this label in Nashville called Dual Tone, had a fabulously successful artist called the Lumineers that went platinum and... Mm-hmm. uh and uh a couple times i believe and that's new and that's uh the same type of model i would imagine so okay you can't on the same scale but you can start your your own record company sign a band put out the record and have a lot of success okay well that's uh it's good to know cuz it's such a terribly hard business and he did he did do it yeah. in such a unique way yeah um, yeah, people were uh, people were wondering if this is still something that's duplicable. Sounds like it'd be hard to do, but you're saying it could be done. Right, I believe it could be done. Not so easy. All right, so here's a loaded question. You don't have to answer it, but I'm going to take a stab here anyway. Um, you worked with a lot of people. Who would you say is the most interesting individual you've worked with? Uh, it would be impossible. They're all <laughs> there. There's a lot of very interesting people. Uh, 
in different ways. You know, Brett is interesting in his way. Danny Elfman is interesting in his way, which is very different. Sarah Bareilles is fabulously interesting, but in a in a completely different way. Uh, Axel Rose is incredibly interesting uh, and complicated. So I think there's just, there's been a lot of them over the years. Not to mention the the people that run the big record companies that I've interfaced with, uh, the moguls. There there's a lot of them are super super interesting as well. So it's it's really hard to say. What makes these guys, in, in your experience, what do you think makes them so interesting? What is it about them collectively that makes them separate from the rest of the world? Well, I think it's it's genius in in anything. Uh, as genius comes in, whether it's athletics or intellect or art or music or business, they they have these skills that nobody else could ever match and these ways of thinking that nobody else could ever could ever match and you you know when you listen to them talk about certain things about their art or about their business and you're just amazed and this one's obvious the perseverance that the really successful artists show uh they don't quit they don't take no for an answer they never give up and that's the hallmark of all successful people. That's for sure. It's very interesting to hear that the artists have that same attitude. I've known a few, and I've known a lot to sort of, uh, you know, get diluted by the process and some of them to give up. Some yeah. Of them, the guys, yeah, you know what I'm saying. Yeah, the ones that didn't give yeah. up, they got rejected a million times. Michael Jordan not making his high school varsity. It's those people who have that level of confidence, even though the, before they get validation, They've decided that they're great. People who do new things that nobody else is into yet, but they've decided, I don't care what anybody thinks. I know it's really good. Yeah. And they keep going. Yeah. I feel yeah. it's like yeah. Einstein. I don't care what anybody thinks. I'm developing this theory. Let them think, let them all think I'm crazy, but I know it's right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I, and we I never hear about all the people, that. we never hear about all the people who, who had that same belief system and were wrong or weren't good. I meet a lot of right. those too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I'm They're sure. I'm sure you do. Well, the thing that's really amazing about music is that it's the only business I know where um, if you can if you can play an instrument competently, you can write a song competently and write the music too. You're doing and and now sing it. That's four different skill sets right there. That's uh, a good point. Yeah. And 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 anyone who can do all of that. I don't know what beats it. I mean, it's fulfilling enough to just play an instrument. It's fulfilling enough to sing. It's fulfilling to uh, to uh, write lyrics. Uh, but to put it all together and run a band and and, uh, and uh, cap it off like that, it's just a, it's a, like riding a magic carpet. It's the most amazing. It's the most amazing business in the world, I think. And so it, it's always been at the top of my list, and I've always had a um, a special place in my heart for it. So here's another loaded question for you. Um, okay. Yeah, you don't have to answer it. <laughs> but uh, I told you the other day of my, my friend who once managed uh, Ike Turner, and Ike Turner handed him a yeah. basket of money. Yeah. So I, Ike was a bit of a difficult guy, as you know, as you already know. So who is the most yeah. – uh, who is the most, let's just put trouble in quotes, because trouble in music is a relative term. You know, it, it, you know, it's a different personality type. Trouble might not mean it in terms of going to jail trouble. But who is the most difficult guy to handle uh, or woman, the person that you've had the most difficult time dealing with? Oh, I, I, would, I would say difficult in the sense of figuring out the rhythms 
and what he stands for and where he won't compromise would be Axl Rose. People assume that he is just difficult, but there's actually a uh, a philosophy. There's a, a a belief in himself and a belief in what's right that makes him difficult compared to what most people do. It's an uncompromising. So it would be easy to say the most difficult, but in fact, he's just sort of the most hard to figure out his rhythms. And that took me several years to realize that there's a logic behind his his belief system. He's not just difficult. Almost as if you're describing if someone handed you a piece of coding and you had to open it up and look at the coding and it took you, you know, a long time to figure out what the coding was before you could understand what the outcome was supposed to be. Yeah, he's, he's that code. way. And it took me, and I'm really grateful that I had, I had the opportunity over over maybe the first five years of our relationship to sort of start to gauge his, his rhythms and what made him, what set him off uh, as a view of injustice and uh, what made him respond. And that's been a, a tremendously satisfying journey. They're an amazing band. The very first time I ever saw them play, I was uh, I was actually living in Chicago. I'd come in uh, I'd come in from a long day of work, and the TV just happened to be on, and something caught my ear. Uh, no one was in the house. The TV was on, and uh, there was uh, Slash. And I'd never seen uh-huh. Slash before. I'd never seen him, and uh, there he was with that giant top hat on and hair all the way around his head, just yeah. beginning to roll like that. Yeah, just beginning to roll into the solo on Sweet Child of Mine. Oh, wow. And, um, yeah, that's what I caught. That's what I heard. Just just beginning to lean into that solo. It just so happened that that particular kind of solo with, uh, you know, really working notes and a little bit of wah on it uh, is my is one of my favorite types of solo sound. So I was mesmerized by it. I couldn't even believe what I was hearing. Then, of course, the band comes back in and Axel takes the song out. I went, I turned around and walked out, found a record store and bought that CD right then and there. That's amazing. What a, what a yeah. moment. I mean, moments like that. I'm lucky. I'm lucky. Uh, I mean, music. Yeah, it's one of those moments where uh, you know I remember where I was when I first heard uh, heard the band. Um, so, how did you end up in the best business on earth? I was from Los Angeles, and back when I was finishing law school, and I, I went to law school just because I sort of had a skill set that led me to law school, and I didn't really have any particular aims. I wasn't a great student, but I was from Los Angeles. I remember I had a friend who was an agent. He came back to L.A. like a year before I did from law school, and instead of being a lawyer, he became an agent. And I remember seeing contracts at his house, and I said, those look really, those are interesting. They're all these music rights. They were like film composers. And he's like, yeah, I have to look at these contracts for my clients. And I said, well, that sounds like a really cool thing to do. So when I started back, and I had a preset job at a small firm in Los Angeles that my late uncle had founded, and I was there, and now it was, uh, he had been an entertainment lawyer, but he had passed away, and his clients had moved on. It was a general, more of a general practice firm, and it was fine, but I was looking around for uh, opportunities of people who might want to train me as an entertainment lawyer. So I was fortunate that I got referred to a guy who had left a big firm, and his practice was growing, and he needed help. So he met me, and he liked me, and he was willing to take me on and train me. So he became wow. my mentor. His name was Rob yeah. Schwartz. Uh, great, great. So, so you uh, you got to lean into the business through a heavyweight mentor. Exactly. He had been a yeah. partner in a couple of prestigious law firms, and even though he was a sole 
practitioner at that point. He had the the, the chops of a lot of prestige learning behind him. Some good clients, and I was able to to learn from him. Very lucky. What was what what so far has been the uh, to date the most interesting, if you can tell us, situation you've been in in the business? There's been a few of them. I'd say back when I was a novice lawyer, I became involved. A, a mother came to me whose daughter was about triple platinum, wasn't seeing any money yet from her endeavors, and every time she spoke up, the uh, the girl whose name was Tiffany, uh, mm-hmm. would threaten to, to uh, along with the production company slash manager she was signed to, uh, they would threaten to uh, have her emancipated because she was under the spell and contract of this sort of, there's a lot of rogues in the music business, and this particular rogue had her sign, had taken her to a big label, they made her a big star, she had a bad deal, and the mom was concerned, but the manager slash production company had manipulated the situation, so the girl was against the mom because the mom didn't make her a star. He did. And she wasn't worried about money. She was 15 years old. So I got involved on behalf of the mother to sort of keep the family together and make sure the money was shaken loose. And it was a really uh, a fascinating and interesting high-profile multifaceted uh, matter and involved family rights and contract rights and money and stardom. And it was, it was great. You probably remember Tiffany from the mid eighties. No, very well. Very, very well. I remember, yeah. I remember she covered, uh, I think we're alone now. I remember. Yeah. That was, very, I think very you're well. alone now. And also uh, there was a couple of covers. I think there was a Beatles song. I saw her standing there maybe. Yes. Yep. Yep. She did that. Yeah. Too. Yeah. Remember so, very well. I think she was the first, uh, if I recall, it was the first uh, teen star that did it in a mall-like setting. Correct. She did the shopping mall tour. Yeah. So that was yeah. my earliest sort of big, controversial, interesting thing. That's a really big <clears throat> deal because, as you said, it, it covered it was a it was a multifaceted problem. Correct. No, yeah, this wasn't really, just solving really a record contract. You had, you had age issues, you had uh, uh, emancipation issues, you had con- you know, contract issue, money issues, family. I mean, this must have been. This must have taken. This must have taken a, a battalion of people to sort out. Yeah, not too many because we didn't. The mom didn't have any resources, so we just had our little clique. We we uh, we worked with a litigator named Neil Goldstein, and we worked with a family law. Attorney, I've forgotten her name now, but it was uh, an interesting adventure. And then uh, it worked out, and the young girl stayed, kept the relationship with her mom and got millions of dollars, and it worked out great. It's always great when you hear a deal ends up working out for the artist because so many, so many don't, which uh, I've just got a few more questions. I know your time is tight. Let me just punch a few more out at you. This leads me right to the next question. How do artists blow deals? How how do they get in the way of their deals that would otherwise have suited them really well and maybe done them really well? Well, artists, that's that's hard to say. I mean, an artist who has particular requirements before they sign an agreement that then blows a deal – that doesn't happen very often because mm-hmm. that artist knows what they want and doesn't enter into a certain agreement. Usually they're doing that because they're smart. They don't feel desperate. 
and something else is going to come along either soon or much later. And in the long run, they I've never seen them really regret it. Artists who make themselves are so difficult uh, that one can argue that they blow opportunities. It happens, but it only matters with the ones that are so big that they can afford to be difficult because somebody's going to work with them. You know, the old story about he was too difficult, so we took somebody of immense talent that could have been a star and he blew his career. I'm not familiar with that happening very often. I see. I see. Those so, are difficult would, and they give everybody headaches. They, they can be very successful. Or the ones who are difficult you, and give everybody headaches, maybe they weren't going to be successful in the first place. Mm-hmm. And would you say that artists coming into uh, the record industry know more today than they did in the early days about uh, record deals, contracts, uh, managers and agents taking advantage of them? Are they more business-oriented today? Or are they still more of the uh, creative mm-hmm. types that just want to hand over? The operation. They are, they are not more business oriented, but they're more marketing oriented. Mm-hmm. They know how to mm-hmm. make a record, put it out virally, do work the YouTube, work the social media. A shocking level of knowledge about marketing and social media. They still don't know about contracts and being taken advantage of any more than they used to, I don't think. But they sure do know a lot more about how to get their career started without the help of a record company. So by the time that they get picked up by a record company, they've already got their audience? They've got like a fan, a fan base, and they've got music out there that sounds great. They've done that really, really well. All right. That's interesting to know that uh, in some ways it hasn't changed, but there sounds like the, so many of them are a product of the uh, social media uh, marketing. They've been forced to. Yeah. yeah. The record companies don't don't spend the money to develop the artists and let you put out a record and and grow it from there. You don't get signed until you already have what they call metrics, which means you have songs that have reacted with people and you have social media fans, and and they see that before they even sign you. They see a song that blew up on uh, on one of the blogs, for example. I see. I see. Now, you, you, uh, you know that the record industry has been in decline for several decades. What do you see as the future of the recording industry now? Well, it's not in decline anymore. Uh, effective... This year, maybe last year, but definitely this year, it had plateaued, and now it's going back up. So what has happened is this advent of streaming and paid for streaming, which is $10 a month per subscriber, is starting to take a foothold. And if you look at the numbers, CDs and vinyl are about tied. (laughs) In certain types of music, in pop music, CDs are still higher. But it's shocking how CDs have drop way off. Digital downloads have dropped off considerably. And streaming is now fifty percent of the market. Oh yeah, no, they're getting I, I promise you, the numbers are getting better are getting better. Very good. No, that's that's very encouraging and good to hear. Uh just a few more questions here, Doug. From a legal aspect, what should new artists be thinking about today? Is it any different today than it than it's been in the past? Uh uh or or, or are things different? Legally for them. Legally, things are very similar for them. Okay. They, right. yeah, they, they they have very similar looking contracts. They have to pay some money to the record companies for now uh, on other areas of income. I don't think that's going to last much longer as the uh, record revenues go up. But other than that, there's not there's not much different legally for artists. Uh, 
what's your favorite sound? What's your favorite sound? What's your favorite type of music if you had to pick one? I know I already know there's many, but if you had to if you had to be on a desert island and have one particular sound you'd live with for a few years, what would it be? Wow. <laughs> I hate the question too because I have a lot of a lot of interest, but if I had to lay down somewhere, I know where it would be. Where would you lay down? I would say it always comes down to for me when artists write their own material and sing it in a heartfelt way that's hooky. And that could be Oasis. It could be Crosby, Stills, and Nash. It could be, you know, what's it? it could be Nirvana. It's sort of like hooky pop rock. Usually it's written by the artist. Yeah, that makes sense to me because um, um, you, you named three different types there, but but you summed it up very, very well, and I think it's not too dissimilar from my own. At the end of the day, there's really nothing in the world Nothing like a really well-written pop song uh, that that has those great hooks and great melodies in it. Well, said a couple other questions here. Do you have a relationship with a guy named Michael Cheney? I know Michael Cheney very well. Criminal defense attorney. Yep, I know him very well. Who's who's very involved with sort of uh, uh, power pop? As you talked to him lately. Yeah, he's a he's a songwriter too, isn't he? Yeah, he's a songwriter too, and so he got involved, very involved with the power pop band out of New Hampshire, I believe. And he's been a, uh, he's been working with them the last few years. But yeah, I've known Michael uh, from time to time over the years for for over twenty years. Yeah, so my he's an interesting guy. A little bit of reading I did on him. The reason I ask is I wanted to ask you: Is there really any such thing as a criminal defense attorney that can also write great music? It's hilarious. That, You've got to be the only one. Yeah. I mean, is that, is that real or is that uh, some sort of Disneyland thing made up fantasy? Well, I've heard the song. And they get Northeast uh, a radio play and some specialty radio play out here, and he, he's into it. He's a great criminal That's defense wonderful. player. It's really, really funny when I read about that. It's the first time I've ever heard of such a thing. It's such an interesting dichotomy. The interview with Doug Mark was a blast for me, and I'm sure it was for you, too. Unfortunately, we had some connectivity problems at the end of our chat, and we were not able to reconnect to close out this great discussion. But we'll get back with him in the future for another great chat. As you can tell, Doug is a very successful and busy music executive and attorney, but he's always available to those seeking his kinds of services. He wants you to feel free to email him at doug at epitaph.com anytime to ask him about his services and anything he might be able to do to help you. Once again, that's Doug, D-O-U-G, at Epitaph, E-P-I-T-A-P-H dot com, anytime if you feel you can use his services. All right, everybody. Thanks, and we'll see you on the next podcast.